This past June, a number of us teachers went to an international Buddhist teachers meeting at uh, Garrison Institute in upstate New York, along the banks of the River Hudson. And it was quite an interesting few days. Uh, there was about 250 people there at the meeting from all different kinds of Buddhist traditions and sects. Um, both the, you know, the obvious ones you think of, Tibetan Zen, Vipassana, but all the little subsects and groups and people I had never heard of or, or groups I had never heard of, and a huge range and variety of practices that were represented there. And we got to hear about people's different uh, communities and teachings and practices as we're in small groups and in some of the larger sessions. And so it was quite a colorful array of people there, some, some big personalities, and of course, all of the beautiful robes that a lot of uh, ordained Buddhist uh, practitioners wear, the, the red and gold of the Tibetans and the, the elegant gray of the, the, some of the Zen uh, sects, and of course, us lay Western teachers, I, I often feel we have robe envy because we're just in our, you know, everyday clothes and they always look so dignified and kind of symbolic of really holding the lineage and the tradition. But it was really helpful to have those few days of sharing. We do this kind of meeting um, every 10 or 15 years or so. And it's great to bring all these people together who normally don't have much connection with each other and to kind of uh, have this fertile field of connection and learning from each other. Because I think it's very easy for us to get kind of lost, I know it is for me, in my own little world, whether it's here at IMS or at Spirit Rock, and think, this is what a retreat center looks like, and this is what Dhamma practice looks like, this is what a retreat looks like. And just to open up to the wide varieties of ways that the Dhamma is uh, expressing itself, especially here in the West, um, you know, from, uh, and to, to also get a sense of all of the inspiring things that people are doing around the world and the, and the vitality that's happening, the, the, the reach of these teachings and how many people are connecting to them. I found out about one center in France where at any one time there could be hundreds of people doing three-year retreats, three years. They're actually in Tibetan practice. It's a three-year, three-month, and three-day retreat. The three days are important, I'm told. But just imagine if at the end of your three-month retreat, you, you know, you were, that was just the tail end and you were signing up for another three years of practice. For serious students in that tradition, that's their norm to do uh, those long extended retreats. And so hundreds of people at this center in France doing that. And they've even got some people who've been in retreat for 25 years, really kind of emulating the hermits of old in Tibet and, and uh, in the old days. So quite amazing. I met one young man, must have been around 30, who'd already done two three-year retreats. So, you know, anytime you think three months is pretty impressive, again, it's all, it's all relative. I still think it is, but it was inspiring to see this. And to also get a sense of the different emphases of each of these major traditions. You know, the Tibetans, a lot about um, the long retreats and empowerments, those kinds of practices. There were people there from the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition who 
don't even do intensive retreats so much, don't, don't practice intensively in silence, but really a lot of interest in daily life practice. And of course, he has those beautiful gattas, you know, washing the dishes or answering the phone or sweeping the path and bringing mindfulness into that. And then the Zen practitioners who have, who have a real um, emphasis on form and the precision with which you do things and that that in and of itself is a whole practice. And Norman Fisher was there. He was a, used to be an abbot at San Francisco Zen Center, now has his own center, and kind of chided us all a little bit for the disarray of our shoes outside the door. You know, he said, in the Zen Center, you would line them all up, and that would be, you know, part of your practice is how you put your shoes, and, you know, did you remember were they on the left side of the door or the right side of the door? Um, I didn't see it change very much after his admonition, but uh, it was interesting to get his perspective. And I don't know how impressed he would be by our little display out here in the cloakroom. It's, it's not one of the things we're known for is the uh, simplicity and aesthetics of our sitting apparatus. You know, it's, uh, we're more into comfort and what works. So that's, that's why I fit here. I think it works for me. But with, uh, it, even within all of these differences, especially differences in some external way of forms of practice, styles of practice, there is, of course, the commonality of all Buddhist teachings. And that is the, uh, what the Buddha said again and again, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. And that all of us could come together knowing that that was the heart of our practice and what we taught, supported by the practices of metta and compassion, that that's the, the manifestation of kindness or caring, that we hold this, this teaching, this truth of dukkha, and the possibility of the end of dukkha, the end of suffering. But as well as that, as a kind of core or foundational teaching or understanding, I also see that mindfulness is a foundational practice, is, is really essential in all of the different traditions, in all of the varieties of practice. For some traditions, it's more an aspect or a part of different, many different practices that they do. Um, some, as I said, the Thich Nhat Hanh people emphasizing it more as a daily life kind of practice. Here, it's our specialty. I mean, you know, I, I called us the Vipassana tradition. There's really, of course, no such thing. We're in the Theravada tradition. But this practice of mindfulness has become what we're known for. We're sometimes even called the mindfulness tradition. So it really is, for us, what's central and essential to what we teach. And I'm sure you're very aware that mindfulness is becoming mainstream. I mean, it's interesting, back in the 70s or so, as the Dharma was, Buddhism was coming to the West, Zen was what was cool, and it was Zen and everything, you know, Zen and archery, and Zen and motorcycle maintenance, and Zen and flower arranging, or whatever it was. Well, now I really see it's mindfulness, and it's mindfulness and psychotherapy, and mindfulness-based stress reduction, and mindfulness teachings in schools, and in prisons, and in businesses. People are really seeing the value of mindfulness, and it's just infiltrating everywhere. But this leads us to somewhat of a dilemma, because often uh, this mindfulness is taught in a way we call secular mindfulness. It's actually removed from the teachings of the Buddha and just a practice in and of itself, and so it's a whole 
question for us, what does that mean for us in this tradition as Buddhist practitioners that there's this movement that's really becoming quite energized, yet it's some, somewhat divorced from what we teach or the fullness of the teachings of the Buddha. And we actually had a whole session at the conference uh, about that. What, what does that mean and how can, you know, how can we uh, inter, inter, interact with that movement and support that movement, but also continue to offer these deep teachings uh, of the Buddha? On the other side, there are many Buddhist scholars who are debating what, what is key or unique to the Buddha's teachings. And I find this kind of interesting. I, I'm not a scholar myself, but I've just done a little bit of reading about these kind of debates. And they're really looking into what was, what was around at the time of the Buddha? What did he grow up with? What were the teachings and practices that were familiar to him? And what was unique? What did he create that was radical or revolutionary in his time? And so you can hear people say, well, it's the Four Noble Truths. That's, that's the teaching that was really radical or new, or how he um, really changed the understanding of the teaching on karma, which the teachings on karma were around at the time, but he had made a radical shift to it being about intention. Or dependent origination, what he often said was his most profound teaching. And so all these kind of debates are going on at the moment. But what I don't hear mentioned so much, and what I actually think, <coughs> me, is radical about the Buddha's teaching, is actually mindfulness. That this was a huge shift. Again, this is just in my understanding in the limited reading that I, I've done and what I know of the time. But the practices at the time, the, a lot was it called the Brahmanical tradition, um, was a lot about ritual and purification. It was a really an outward expression of practice and what, what one could do to please the gods or come to the end of suffering was through ritual and purification. There was a lot of emphasis on the intellect and philosophy. There was a lot of debates going on at the time. So what the Buddha did with this teaching or practice of mindfulness, where he said, rather than all of that, turn the attention inward. Pay attention to this mind and this body. And within this very experience is everything that you need to know and understand to come to full awakening. You know, the classic line is, within this fathom-long body, and a fathom just is the length of a body, is everything, is the world, basically, and everything you need to know to come to awakening. So to me, that was the radical shift. And I think mindfulness, ultimately, is going to be the thing, the, the, the vehicle through which Buddhism has the greatest influence in the 21st century and beyond, because it's really... A, a radical shift. It was then and it is today. Instead of our obsession with the outer, with getting and having and looks and appearances and acquisitions and, and status, to say, stop, sit still, close your eyes, pay attention, go within, you know, tune into what's actually happening here and now. This, I think, is quite an amazing practice. And in some ways, it's so simple. Yet you all know how hard it is. And you have all, no doubt, tasted the benefits of this practice, of this 
clear and intimate knowing that mindfulness can develop and deepen into. So I thought I'd talk tonight a a little bit more about mindfulness. Guy spoke some last night about it, but just this is going to be our conversation for these weeks together, is developing and deepening our mindfulness and what we're knowing and experiencing through that practice. So what is mindfulness? You know, I've talked about how this word is becoming very commonplace. You know, you could say it to almost anyone these days, almost anyone, and they would kind of have, at least have heard of it. But I, again, through this conference or my other experiences with other um, Buddhist traditions, I know that they have different understandings of what it is. And even within our tradition, we will sometimes discuss and debate what mindfulness actually is. So I think it's helpful for us to inquire a little bit into this word and what we mean by it, because we're going to be using it a lot. And it's going to be helpful if we know what we're talking about when we use it. So many of you probably know the Pali word that we're translating uh, with mindfulness is sati. And I'm told that this word uh, has a root in remembering. So it has some association with remembering, even as it points to this knowing in the present moment. And I often say, you know, why that's key or helpful for us is it's actually easy to be mindful. I could, you know, snap my fingers and say, be mindful, and you'd all go, okay, right. But what's hard is to remember to be mindful, is to remember again and again to be mindful. So that's why it's an important part of the meaning of the word. As Guy spoke about it last night, the, the essence of mindfulness, the essence of our practice is being in the present moment. This is key. We don't get anywhere unless we land in the here and now and know what's happening. But I want to explore that and widen our understanding of that a little bit um, so that that we have a bigger picture of what mindfulness is because just being in the present moment isn't enough. It's It's not going to do it for us. So I want to um, offer to you an example. I was at another teaching where another Vipassana teacher was talking about mindfulness, having this discussion with a group of senior students. And he gave three examples of people doing things and asked, are they being mindful? So the first example is a burglar. Someone creeping into your home at night while you're asleep, trying to steal your stuff. Are they being mindful? The second one was a rock climber, free climber. You know, someone who's going up uh, 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 at some great height, a rock wall, and having to be so careful of every finger hold and foot placement. Are they being mindful? And the third was a surgeon, someone cutting someone open, and, you know, possibly endangering their life through that surgery. Are they being mindful? So what do you think? Um, Who thinks the burglar is being mindful? Okay. Who thinks the rock climber is being mindful? Who thinks the surgeon is being mindful? Who thinks all three are being mindful? 
Who, what about you who didn't hold up? You just don't know? Or <laughs> so some pe- it looked like some, you know, there was some agreement that these people were all being mindful. In your um, response to that, did you take into any account intention? Yes or no? Yes. So you could say the burglar had a not-so-skillful intention, an unwholesome intention. The rock climber had a selfish intention. Hopefully the surgeon had an altruistic intention, trying to help people. Did that make a difference in your understanding of whether they were being mindful or not? Yes, no, I see, no. Didn't, intention didn't figure into it. Some people, that, that's often what they think mindfulness is, or it's a good thing. So unless you're you know, doing something good, it's not mindfulness. You know, we could extend this by, you know, are the chipmunks mindful? They're out there, you know, very vigilant. They're watching everything. It's a kind of mindfulness, isn't it? Is the chipmunk mindful, but the rock climber... No, is the chipmunk not mindful, but the rock climber is? It's not so simple when you get to that, is it? So what is it that really makes mindfulness? And I'm going to disagree with all of you who put their hands up. Because I don't think what those people are manifesting is what I would call true mindfulness. And remember, what we're talking about here is not just, you know, that I'm aware of what I'm doing. I'm talking about sati. And I'm particularly talking about sama sati, a path factor, white, white, I always do that, right or wise mindfulness as a path factor. To me, there's a big difference in just being aware of what I'm doing and actually being mindful as a practice in the Buddhist tradition, as a practice of uh, a path factor of the Eightfold Path. For me, mindfulness is knowing what's happening, but there's a knowing that you know, or some reflective quality, some awareness of context in which this mindfulness is happening. And you could say intention, but even more purpose, that there is a reason why I'm being mindful, and it's to cultivate certain qualities or to lead in a certain direction. You often hear this term, bare awareness. And again, that's an essential part of what we're practicing here, is to get to know our experience with as little filters as possible, as directly and intimately as possible. But it can lead us again to a misunderstanding of what mindfulness is, because we think if we're just right there in this moment, and we forget the past, and we don't think about the future, then that's all we need to do. Again, I don't think that's a full understanding of mindfulness. True mindfulness will lead to insight. True mindfulness will lead to a seeing clearly the nature of reality, to lessening suffering, letting go, disidentification. This is the direction that mindfulness will naturally go. And when you think of my three examples, I mean, that may happen to one of those people, but it's not the intention that they're doing that activity with. And if it happened, it would kind of be a miracle probably. I mean, it could happen. Mindfulness is done in our context. Again, samasati, what we're talking about and practicing here, is done with this context or purpose in mind. 
Bhikkhu Bodhi, that uh, great scholar who's doing a lot of translating of the Pali texts at the moment, uh, says, in the proper practice of right mindfulness, sati has to be integrated with sampajanya, right, uh, clear comprehension. And it is only when these two work together that right mindfulness can fulfill its intended purpose. He also said, samasati, which is wise mindfulness, a path factor, must also be guided in right view, steered by right intention, these are other path factors, grounded in the three ethical factors, and cultivated in conjunction with samavayama, right effort. Right effort necessarily presupposes the distinction of mental states into unwholesome and the wholesome. So there's this whole context in, in, within which we practice samasati, right mindfulness. And this is the bigger picture that we need to keep remembering. You know, not all the time, like, I've got to remember this, but there's a context in which we're doing this, why it makes sense. You know, we're not practicing to become good breathers or to learn how to walk slowly. We're practicing to come to deeper wisdom and understanding, to lessen our suffering. So the purpose of mindfulness is to deepen insight through this seeing clearly, being in the present moment. We commonly talk about it, um, of seeing the three characteristics, which we'll probably talk about at some point, of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. It's a primary uh, functioning of mindfulness to see that. But also, almost as importantly, the functioning of mindfulness is to develop the wholesome qualities, and decrease the unwholesome ones. And it's interesting that it's said that mindfulness, just through its own functioning, has the tendency to increase the wholesome states that it notices and to decrease the unwholesome ones without us actively doing it, oh, we've got to get rid of this, this is not good, or I want more of that. Just this kind of mindfulness has that natural uh, ability, has that natural progression. So we need to really expand what our understanding of mindfulness is. One of my teachers, Saida Utejaniya, talks about this a lot. He has a whole little book called Awareness Alone is Not Enough. And this is basically what he's pointing to, that our awareness or our mindfulness needs this context within which we're practicing and needs the wisdom that is understanding what's going on and what's being developed. He, he's a great teacher. Um, a number of us have practiced here with him, some you know, more than others. I've only sat a little bit with him, but really appreciated his teachings and his writings. And he says, the basic objective of meditation is to improve the quality of the mind. So he says, the work of awareness is just to know. The work of wisdom is to differentiate between what is skillful and unskillful. So there's this kind of tracking that needs to be happening in our mindfulness. He says, wisdom inclines towards the good, but is not attached to it. It shies away from what is not good, but has no aversion to it. Wisdom recognizes the differences between skillful and unskillful, and it clearly sees the undesirabil undesirability of the unskillful. 
So samasati has this natural wisdom that gets cultivated with it. Without us you know, having a big agenda, we, we can cultivate this, this um, clarity, this skill in our practice that is really essential, just out of paying attention. Paying attention with this background of wisdom or understanding. It's really important that that is there. Otherwise, we're just kind of automatums, you know, lifting, moving, placing, breathe in, breathe out. It's this purification, this cultivation that's so important. But again, I don't want to be talking tonight and create this big burden or agenda. It is the natural function of mindfulness when we practice in this way, when we have this understanding, which we all have, of why we're practicing. I love this poem from Mary Oliver, who's you know, such a, a great um, orator of, of the interior, uh, uh, especially uh, inspired by nature. And it's a kind of easy one to put in a talk like this because it's just called Mindful. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world. That's this interior world. To lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these, the untrimmable light of the world, the ocean's shine, the prayers that are made out of grass? Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these? So, as I've said, this being in this present moment is the fundamental aspect of this practice. But to bring the wisdom in or the context in that I've been talking about, we need to expand to what I call the three times. I didn't make this up, but it's called the three times. You know what they are, past, present, and future. And we're always told, you know, forget the past, don't worry about the future, it's not here, just be in the present moment. Yes, and, or yes, but, you know, there's more to it than that. Of course, being in the present is essential. I've got from Jack Cornfield that famous line, he says, you know, there's a sign in the casino in Las Vegas, you have to be present to win. And it's kind of like that here, you know, unless you're here, you know, this is where life happens in this present moment. It's what this practice really shows us. But, you know, what is our actual experience? We get lost. As James was talking about this morning, we wander off into all of these reveries of past and future. But at some point, whether it's five seconds or 50 seconds or five minutes or 50 minutes, we wake up. And that moment of mindfulness happens. And, you know, I often hear people say, you know, why do I get lost? I'm, I'm so determined to stay with the breath and to be really focused and I get lost. 
you know, that's understandable. That's the nature of the mind to be distracted. Why do we wake up? That's what's really interesting. That's a moment we need to pay attention to. Because if we pay attention to that and can receive that with some grace and interest, it's much more likely that it'll happen again. That's how we train the mind, by having this sense of appreciation. So we wake up, and what our practice can be is to notice what is this moment like? What is the state of the mind and heart right now? So we come back from wherever we were, what's happening? And and, and in, in a simple way of saying it, a greed, aversion, and delusion present. What's the nature of the mind and heart? Are we wanting something? Are we pushing something away? Are we spaced out? Are we irritable? Are we lustful? Are we deluded? We just check in and see what's happening right now. What, what, what is the whole uh, weather that we're experiencing right now? Irritability or frustration or restlessness or sleepiness? We check in. And then what can be helpful, and again, this is just a suggestion for practice, that you, you don't, not something you have to do all the time, but that I think is really helpful. There can be this momentary reflection on where you were, what got you to this moment. It's not a big disquisition, inquisition, you know, reverie, of, oh, right, you know, I was thinking of riding my bike, and then I thought of a bike ride that I usually do, and on that bike ride, yeah, I go by my friend's house, so I thought of her, and then I realized she's having a problem with her hip, so I wondered about this other friend who's lame. And, you know, you can do that kind of thing, and sometimes it's interesting just to see how crazy our minds are and, you know, how we can just do this leapfrogging from one thing to another. I'm not talking about that. You know how you can do it in a snapshot? You just kind of know, you know, you were dwelling on something that's leaving you irritated or restless or, or out of sorts in some way. It's just a snapshot, but there's just this recognition of where the mind was in the previous mind moments. In a moment, you can get that. And so you realize what led you to this moment. This is where the wisdom comes in. So we start to see... Um, Oh, from that moment, we have the possibility, and this is why being in the present moment is key, it allows a choice point. Otherwise, we're just in the treadmill of our old habits and reactivity. But where mindfulness is so key is this moment of options, this moment of clarity where we see where we were. We were lost in this and that, in aversion or wanting or frustration or rehearsing. And we see where it led us. We feel what it's like in the body. It's uncomfortable. I feel contracted or I'm really excited or, you know, happy or whatever it is. And we make a choice. Is that something that was helpful and beneficial? I'm feeling a lot of metta or generosity or joy or peace. Then we can know, okay, that's worthwhile continuing. That's skillful. This is the discerning that Sayadu Tejaniya was talking about. Or we can see that we're caught in one of the hindrances and we're lost in sleepiness or doubt or restlessness. Then we can take stock and see, can I make a different choice here? Can I actually shift what's happening? And so we make that choice. And then the next, the third moment is, what happens out of that choice? Just this little bit of tracking, this little bit of uh, cueing into, okay, made the choice, Does it actually lead me in the direction 
that I want to go? Is it cultivating what I want to cultivate? Is it actually supporting my intention or aspiration? Now, you know, these choices, it's, you know, it's easy for me to talk about. I know how subtle and challenging this is in the practice. And again, it, in saying this, I'm not saying that every moment you should be evaluating and making these choices. This is just when you find yourself in that moment of waking up or that moment of really connecting and you see that possibility of choice, you know, ha- ha- and, and, and you can actually influence where the direction of the mind. When I'm talking about choices or directions, I'm not saying, you know, there's a right and a wrong, that this is what you should do or it should look like that. It's not like a a railroad track that we get on and, you know, this is a direction you should be going. That's not helpful at all. It's got to be responsive and intuitive and kind and accepting of where we are, all of those qualities. I think of it more like a compass. You know, if you hold a compass and you're hiking and you know you want to go northeast and you veer off a little in this direction, the compass shows you. It doesn't say you have to go in this direction, but it shows you need to tend in this direction if you want to get back on on track, on, on course. So to hold it like that, that we have these intentions for ourselves, we all had them, we've reflected on them already in, in coming here, is what I'm doing in this moment supporting that. Is it heading in that direction? So this is the wisdom that mindfulness needs to have to actually fulfill its functioning. Some, many of you have probably heard the, the story that's told of Ajahn Chah, that wonderful Thai meditation master of the last century in, Tha- in Thailand. Um, and you know, he's a great teacher, but one of the students practicing with him, monk probably came up and said, you know, I'm really getting confused and frustrated. You know, I hear you just telling people different things all the time. Can't you just say one thing and say it clearly, and that's what we should all do? And he just, Ajahn Chah just smiled and said, you know, you don't understand. It's like I see people walking down this broad thoroughfare, and there are these big ditches on either side. And some people are veering off to the right. So I say, go left, go left. And some people are veering off to the left. So I say, go right, go right. It's all to help them find this middle way, this balance of practice. And that's what we're doing here. There's no right way to do this. There's no way you should be, no thing you should be experiencing or way you should be uh, directing your attention. But there is being in touch with what's being cultivated. Am I, am I supporting this direction that I want to go in of, of, deepening wisdom and opening my heart to wisdom and compassion. So it's this, it's an, it, what I'm hoping to give you tonight is this invitation to just expanding a little our understanding of mindfulness. Not to get, it's not a, a, an invitation to get caught in a lot of thinking, a lot of rumination, a lot of decision making. These things can happen in a moment. It requires us to be fully present. But it also requires this perspective, this willingness to be with things in their fullness rather than pushing away or limiting what our experience is. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, Guy and I watched a, a wonderful movie that I resisted watching for a long time. He kept saying, and I said, no, no, because I thought it was going to be quite dark and full of a lot of violence. It was called Of Gods and Men. 
It's a French movie about these Cistercian monks that had an abbey in Algeria during the Algerian Civil War. Apparently this abbey had been there since the uh, mid-19th century, so it had a, quite a long tradition. Of course, France has a long and complicated history with Algeria. And this small group of men, there was, I don't know, eight or ten of them in this abbey, um, got caught up in the Algerian Civil War. So there was a lot of violence happening around them, people being killed, and they had to make a decision as to whether they would stay and support the community or leave for their own safety. And of course, the local villagers really wanted them to stay. They were very much part of the fabric of the community, um, you know, went to the marketplace on Friday and sold their honey and, and wares. And they also had a medical clinic that was really important for the community. And the officials wanted them to leave because they said, we can't guarantee your safety. And so the movie is about these men contemplating what they should do. It's not about, you know, what happens at the end, because that's of record. You know, we know what happens. It's, you know, they get kidnapped in the end. But it's not that they don't focus on that. It's all about their daily lives and how they go about making this decision. And they're all in different places. Some of them just want to pack up and leave. They're really afraid. And others are just so committed to being there, it's just no question. And then a number of them in between kind of wavering. But it, it shows their whole group process, which is a lot about these debates, you know, that it's a community decision. No one says we're going or we're staying. They wanted to come to a community decision. And at the same time, they also said each one individually could make a decision to leave or stay. And so the movie is just this um, beautiful depiction of their life as monastics. It's a bit like that other movie, Integrate Silence, just the, the, the simplicity of their life and their faith and their rituals, um, but also these discussions they have about what they should do. And I could really see how if they got really caught into past or future, you know, past the nostalgia for how things used to be and their relationships both in Algeria but also to their, their family at home in France or into the future and into fear, then they were all at odds with each other. But when they could stay in the moment, let that be there because you can't ignore it, but let, let that inform them. They came to this beautiful harmony of decision to stay. And it was a just a very heartfelt evocation of, an, of a really hard thing to depict, which is an inner spiritual life and how it manifests in the world. And so a little bit to me, this is kind of what I'm pointing to. They had to be so in the moment to actually make that decision from a place of purity and of faith. Yet at the same time, they couldn't ignore what was going on around them and how that, how that informed their decision. So this is what we practice for, to find this place of abiding where wisdom can really manifest and actually deepen what we're looking for, or what we're wanting to cultivate. This sense of peace and calm and equanimity, this sense of inner knowing, inner trust that we can develop. Yet of course, you know, we sit down to meditate and what happens? 
the mind just does its thing. You know, we have such a sincere intention and uh, especially on a long retreat like this. And what happens? You know, there we go, past, future. You know, at home it's don't forget to send that email going over and over again in, in rotation. Here it's like, you know, what have you got to worry about? But still, doesn't the mind get filled with things, you know? when I need to wash my socks, where I should go walk next, what I need to do about my yogi job, what I'm going to say in my interview tomorrow, the mind just gets filled with this agitation, this kind of restlessness. We need to pay attention when that's there. Otherwise, we can get in this whole feedback loop. The restlessness leads to contraction in the body and a kind of irritable energy, which leads to more restlessness. So it's why we've been emphasizing in the instructions, um, the sense of relaxation. So important. If you can relax physically, the mind is a little, little less uh, acquiescent than the body is most of the time, but it will eventually come to trust that it's okay, that we can actually sit here and just pay attention. So this relaxation is so helpful. And we can really begin to see mindfulness as a training to direct all this mental energy into the present moment and to clear seeing. All of this kind of mental proliferation and distractedness that we normally live in can be focused into the here and now and penetrated in a way we can't when we're lost in the busyness of our life. Because that's where we are most of the time, lost in past and future. One of my teachers is Hobbes of Calvin and Hobbes. You know, it's a cartoon, so you don't know. Calvin is a, I don't know, what is he, about seven or eight years old? And Hobbes is his imaginary tiger who's always the voice of wisdom. So Calvin and Hobbes are climbing a tree and Calvin says, I suppose the secret to happiness is learning to appreciate the moment and he's climbing further out the tree. I, for example, take great pleasure in being right here, right now, doing what we're doing. And Hobbes says, of course, you're supposed to be in school. (laughs) And Calvin says, I couldn't appreciate those moments. (laughs) So we have this, you know, idea about being present, but we resist, there's always something that seems preferable to actually being in the here and now. What is important about mindfulness, as I said, is allowing this choice point, this possibility of changing these old habits of mind, these tendencies, these ruts, these grooves that we're so often in, and to bring some wisdom in. Maharaj, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, Indian saint of again, the last century, of what we understand, we are the masters of what we do not understand, we are the slaves. So it really is about understanding wisdom. It's not just enough to be mindful. We need to understand what's happening and to relate to our thoughts wisely. It's meditation is not about not thinking. If that was the goal, we'd all run out of here crazy because you can't do it. You, know, you can't force the mind to stop thinking. Perhaps for moments or periods of time through sheer force of will, you can do it a little bit, but it never lasts. Because that's the nature of the mind. 
We don't want to make thoughts the enemy. We just want to start to relate to them differently and more wisely. And so what we're doing here is developing skills about how to do that, about how to relate to our experience with more wisdom, with more kindness, with more understanding. And it is developed by this tracking that I've been talking about, this this clarity of seeing that sees what happens. If I dwell on this experience or this body pain or this mind state or these kinds of thoughts, then I see that this is where I end up in confusion or frustration or resentment or agitation. We just, we see that. We see it for ourselves. We see the conditioned nature of our experience. We see what happens when we let go, when we accept, when we release, when we actually come into uh, alignment with what's happening. We see the peace and calm the equanimity that develops out of that. This is uh, self-created wisdom. This is the wisdom that we're talking about. So the question always is, for us as, in a, as practitioners, what's happening and how am I relating to it? Even, perhaps, what am I learning from it? What understanding is coming from how I'm relating to this experience? I, I, again, don't want to imply that you should always be asking these questions, that, the, that, that this is you know, a very uh, mental process of, of challenging and questioning all the time. But certainly at times, to, you know, just well, what's happening? What's happening right now? Just like we'll sometimes during a meditation say, you know, James said this morning, begin the meditation again. What's happening right now? How are you relating to it? This is really skillful. And to get really curious about what's happening. You know, why, why is this negative state of mind perpetuating? Why do I keep getting caught in this? Again, not a lot of questions. We can often get the answer to that in a moment just through the clarity of the mindfulness. And of course, to be really aware when the positive states are there, when we find ourselves with a lot of peace or calm, or joy, or equanimity, or energy, or tranquility. We need to know that too. Understand the conditions that allowed that experience to arise so that we can support those. This is very much a part of the Buddhist practice. As uh, again, Sayadaw Utejaniya says, when the defilements are strong, the mind will be interested in things that feed the defilements. When, if wisdom is strong, the mind will be interested in what supports wisdom. So they had these natural tendencies. If we, if we cultivate the wisdom, it will be fed by our experience and grow and deepen. But unfortunately, just like the weeds in the garden, so are the defilements, so are the, the hindering qualities, the greed, aversion, and delusion, the restlessness and doubt. So we need to pay attention. And also to know that Vipassana is not passive. I often feel, and I you know, can be guilty of it myself, you hear in the instructions, it's in this accepting or observing, allowing, there's a passivity that we can hear. 
I call it the lump on the log practice, you know, just kind of lost in whatever's happening. There has to be that foundation or that basic acceptance. Yes, that's essential. But it doesn't mean that we stay lost in that, that that's all there is to our experience. Relax, observe, allow, essential. But we also need to engage a little if something difficult is happening, if we're lost, if we're confused, if we're irritable, if we find we're in this spiral of um, negativity or frustration, we need to actually work with that. And so, as I said, mindfulness is our first uh, course of action always, just to be aware of what's happening. I said earlier, mindfulness naturally reduces the hindrances and naturally increases the wholesome state. So often that's all we need to do. And relax, observe, allow, that's all we need to have the, the um, balance of mind be maintained or, or um, cultivated. But sometimes we need to be more interactive. Sometimes we need to use skillful means, apply antidotes, you know, whatever wisdom we can bring to the moment of what to pay attention to. You know, sometimes shifting to a bigger focus or something neutral like sounds, or to even go to metta practice. We'll talk about all these skillful means a lot during these weeks together. But what we're looking for ultimately is balance. You know, if there's tightness, we want to soften and open. If we're too spacey, we need to bring more clarity and focus. If there's dullness, we need to bring more investigation. If there's restlessness, how do we develop calm? These are the skills that we need to develop if we're going to deepen in our practice. None of us up here can tell you exactly how to do that. This is your experiment. It's like the mind and body is this laboratory, and you get to explore. How do I bring this mind and body into a degree of peace and equanimity so that it can see clearly what's happening? So that, you know, when there's difficulty, I can open to it and stay present or know how to take care of myself. This is really what we're practicing. And then we start to open to this key, this pith instruction that was so helpful for me, and we'll say it over and over again. It's not what's happening that's important. It's how you're relating to it. This is so key. Again, Saida Utejaniya, he says very glibly, I think, what is happening is never a problem. I mean, sometimes it really feels like a problem, but you can really see how we're making it a problem. If we can open to what's happening, be present for what's happening, be kind to ourselves um, in relating to what's happening, then our mindfulness is working. We can actually engage with our experience and learn from it and grow in it and cultivate what we're looking to cultivate, what our intentions are. So I really see this kind of mindfulness, samasati, as a, as a reprogramming. It's a radical shift to the normal way we engage with our mind and our experience. I'm a, I, I'm a 
kind of a techie person. I love computers and I, you know, I, I got a new computer about three years ago and you remember what it's like? It's like it's shiny and new and it's so fast and it whizzes around on the internet and it opens programs up really quickly and everything just moves along. Well, three years later, it's not so fast anymore. It's like everything churns a little bit and of course I've loaded it up with stuff. Um, but everything was just getting sluggish, so I downloaded one of those utilities you can get to tune up the computer. And of course it showed me all this stuff that had been added, all these programs that were loading up every time I booted up, and all this stuff that was happening, and most of it I didn't even know what it was, I hadn't asked for it, it was just all coming in from all sides, and it said you can get rid of this, and you can get rid of that. And so I just did this big clean out, and you know how it feels so good. I can't say it really changed my computer, but it certainly felt good to get rid of all that stuff that was just cluttering it up. Well, this is what we're doing here. It's like, you know, the mind, the computer that's there, it's gotten really cluttered up, hasn't it, with all of these old programs and uh, viruses that have gotten stuck in there, these habit patterns, you know, we're just slow and clunky now. You know, it's like this is, this is how we react to things. Uh, you know, it's like we start out as a baby, really good hardware, not much software. But, you know, gradually the software gets loaded up. You get all this programming, all this conditioning, all of this patterning that happens. You know, when this happens, I react this way. I get irritable. I get fearful. You know, I get nervous or whatever. And after a while, we, we're not in control anymore. Someone presses the button and there we are on automatic pilot. This retreat especially is the greatest software cleanup you can ever have. And it's also like the best antivirus software. You know, some of them are really clunky. I really don't like, they slow everything down, they're checking so much. This is like instant antivirus software. You see the, the thoughts coming in that are, that are um, aversive or painful or whatever. It's like if the mindfulness is there, they don't have to stick. We can actually have a different relationship to it. So I really love that we're beginning these weeks of reprogramming this kind of clunky hardware-software combination we've got going here and to see what can we do with this to really freshen it up, bring some clarity, bring some perception, bring some ease, bring some kind of spontaneity and, and engagement that can come when all of that stuff starts to diminish a little, starts to move into the background and possibly, possibly even like the delete key, you know? It's just gone. That old habit of mind, that contraction of the heart, that feeling of loneliness or insufficiency. We can really shift those difficult patterns of the mind and begin to actually start to cultivate qualities and um, tendencies, possibilities that will bring a degree of freedom and openness, of kindness and generosity that we probably don't even know, can't imagine is possible for us. So here we are, the beginning of tuning up, this major overhaul, tuning up the computer, the software, the hardware, seeing what doesn't work and seeing if it's possible to begin to be not so caught, not so overwhelmed, to let it go and be in this clarity, this crystal clarity that can come 
with mindfulness. You know what that is when everything seems bright and clear and the whole Dhamma opens up the possibility of freedom, the possibility of the end of suffering. And this is what we're doing here. And we begin to understand the suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. That's our task here for these weeks together. Let's just take a moment to let the words settle into silence. You don't need to adjust your posture, just sit quietly for a moment. Give your attention. Time now for walking, and then we'll have the last formal sitting of the evening at 9.15. The spring is going to lead it this evening, and with the beautiful met- words of the Metta Sutta. So hope you'll come join, and we'll do it a little shorter again this evening, perhaps, to encourage those of you that are still feeling a little sluggish to, to come join. So it won't be the full 45 minutes. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.